Welcome to Jewish History Soundbites Podcast with Yehuda Geber. Immerse yourself in the rich tapestry of Jewish history as we explore fascinating tales and uncover hidden gems from our glorious past. Brought to you by our proud sponsor, Cross River, a leader at the intersection of financial services and technology committed to empowering the communities they serve. Cross River's steadfast support fuels our mission to preserve our heritage and foster a vibrant future for all. Contact Cross River through their website at crossriver.com. A date which will live in infamy. Both of those projects, initiatives, got off the ground because of the Guerrero. The 11 Olympic team members slain in West Germany. The Olympic Games. So geheist waren die Brüder in Amerika. So kaufen Schabes at the Skizal. Out of the 24 who were killed were Americans who had come to learn in Kevin. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut in Whoever heard such beautiful words, It is never too little, it is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide, Yehudi Gabra with Jewish History Soundbites, and this episode is part three of our Great Escape to Shanghai series. And I just want to mention before we start part three that the I just had a bonus episode where I discussed with my good friends Davi Safir and Nachi Weinstein of Farm Chatter podcast about our article in Mishpacha magazine this past week, which you should check out, about Rabbeinu Minsker, who's obviously related to this story because he's part of the Mir Yeshiva as a refugee, and he ends up not getting one of the visas and stays behind and gets killed by the Nazis. And there's this reprinting of his Sefer, the Yainas Elam, and um, and uh, it's available wherever you purchase your Sfarim, so you might want to purchase a new copy of the newly printed Yainas Elam that we wrote about in the magazine. So, in parts one and two, we laid the groundwork, kind of. Um, I talked about the outbreak of the war and the, um, the rush to Vilna as it was returned to Lithuania from Soviet-occupied Poland and eastern Poland and how many refugees streamed to Vilna, and how the Mir Yeshiva was one of those, and how the Mir Yeshiva settled in Kedan, and then later uh, with the Soviet occupation of Lithuania, which was jumping ahead of the story, um, they were dispersed into four shtetls across northern Lithuania, across the countryside. And that's where we're holding. And really, uh, now we're starting the most exciting part of the whole series, and that is the search for the visas, and then the Dutch Curaçao visas, and the Sugihara Japanese transit visas, and that forms the heart of this whole story of the escape to Shanghai. 
And because it's such a crucial, important, and greatly misunderstood uh, element of the story, I believe it will take two um, installments to cover this part of the story. So I think parts three and four will probably be this uh, story. So let's jump ahead right into it. But right as we're jumping in, just remember to tell your friends and family about Jewish History Soundbites and about specifically about this series. They should get on board and catch up on the episodes that they haven't listened to yet and and uh, follow uh, follow us through the rest of the series. And definitely also to, uh, to um, spread the word and uh, drop a rating and a review um, wherever you listen to your podcast. That's the best way to help the podcast out. So, I also got a lot of feedback already from the first two parts. One of a few people actually uh, pointed out, and I and I was remiss in not emphasizing this, is that I I I, I emphasize because of the Mir Yeshiva and most of the other yeshivas. So I emphasize the escape from Soviet-occupied Eastern Poland to neutral and independent Lithuania um, at the beginning of the war. What should be pointed out is that the, another avenue of escape, which was even more risky, was from Nazi-occupied Western and Central Poland to Eastern Poland, Soviet-occupied Eastern Poland, and from Soviet-occupied Eastern Poland, then they went to neutral and independent Lithuania. And that means there was you know, a, a, cro- a crossing of borders between Nazi-occupied Poland and Soviet-occupied Poland, and then either getting to the Vilna area before the transfer, and then they were safe, or even smuggling across the border even after the transfer, and therefore they're crossing two borders during wartime, a much more risky venue. But many, many, many went that route. Um, and uh, notably, um, some of the famous rescue activists went that went that route, Zahar HaChavarevtig himself, he was a lawyer in Warsaw before the war, so he got there from Nazi-occupied Poland to Vilna. Um, the Majitsa Rebbe, the Amshinava Rebbe, were obviously in the Warsaw area as well. They were in Otvatsk and talking about Otvatsk and Warsaw, so of course we have the famous Toymchei Tamimim branch, um, which contingent, I should say, not branch, contingent, which reached Vilna as well, and then later they would be in Shanghai. And the Rebbe de Rayats sends them, I believe, my my, my sources uh, tell me that it was 38 Talmidim from the flagship Taimchei Tamim Yeshiva um, over there in, in Warsaw, Atvats, and and um, and they make it to, the the, the Friedrich Rebbe uh, sends them to go uh, to try to get to Lithuania. So they're crossing from Nazi Poland to Soviet Poland to Lithuania. Others as well. By the way, the another famous component of the rescue is the Levin family. Uh, Isaac or Yitzchak and Pessa uh, Levin. So Pessa Levin was a Dutch citizen, so she plays a major role in the in the uh, Dutch Curacao visas. We're going to talk about that as well. So they lived in Ludge. Um, Isaac Levin was, I think he was Rabbi Doctor, if I'm not mistaken, um, was a son of the Reisherov, Rabbi Aaron Levin. So he was a activist in Agudas Yisrael, one of the leaders of Agudas Yisrael in Ludge. He served on the city council in the Iria in Ludge before the war. So he and their, their son, of course, is Nat Lewin, the famous uh, lawyer. 
Um, so they, they escape from Lodz, which is obviously Nazi-occupied Poland as well, and they make it to Vilna. So there's definitely that route of the escape. And now we get to the beginnings of the visa searching. So what time period are we talking about? So essentially, we're talking about from the beginning, meaning there was never a, a, a day where they weren't searching for visas. There wasn't the frantic search for visas or the desperate uh, seeking out uh, visas and escape routes that there came to be later with the Soviet occupation. But from day one, um, when they arrive in Vilna, they arrive in Lithuania, these are refugees. They don't see any way of settling permanently in, in, in Vilna. They don't know if the war is going to reach Lithuania. They don't know if they're going to be able to return their homes to return to their homes in Poland. And many of them, not all of them, but many of them right away commence a search for uh, for the next step. They're trying to get away from the war zone. So right away, you know, to leave Poland is to get out of the war zone. So they're away from Soviet-occupied Poland or Nazi-occupied Poland. And now they're in independent, neutral Lithuania. So presumably they're safe. They're out of the war zone. But there are some who suspect a Soviet takeover at some point. I doubt any of them suspected a Nazi takeover. Although, again, from the feedback I got, it seems that the Friedrich Rebbe, when he was sending Hasidim or Talmidim um, of his to Vilna, he, in some letters he wrote that he suspected a Nazi takeover, in some other letters he suspected he writes about a Soviet takeover. So it seems that there was fear of a Nazi takeover as well. I'm not sure how um, uh, well well grounded that that fear was um, at that point, um, or when it would take place. But definitely there was reason to suspect that, that there would be a Soviet takeover of the Baltic states, including Lithuania, obviously, and therefore they needed to move on. They needed to get out of Lithuania as well. Like I said before in last episode, were Jews living in Switzerland trying to obtain visas in order to escape at this time because they assumed that the war would come to Switzerland? Maybe. I don't know. I never did research on the topic. But, for instance, Holland and, 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 um, the Netherlands and, 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 uh, and the other low country, what's it called? But Belgium were both neutral, both officially neutral. And to, to bypass the Maginet line, the, when, when, uh, Hitler invaded, when the Wehrmacht invaded France in the spring of 1940, in May 1940, so he did via the Low Countries, via Holland and Belgium. See, he violated their neutrality. So, you know, Switzerland could have seen that and said, hey, you know, maybe he's going to violate our neutrality as well. So maybe Jews in Switzerland should have searched for visas to get out before it's too late. Now, as it turned out, Switzerland remains neutral throughout the war. So my, my question is, you know, looking at back at the time, do peop, Jews living in neutral countries, Sweden, Lithuania, Belgium, Holland, Switzerland, um, Spain, Portugal, uh, missing any neutral countries, Turkey, um, are they all looking at the war, at the Nazi expansionism, and, and saying, hey, even though we're in neutral countries, we're not safe, we should try to obtain visas to get out of Europe altogether? Or do some countries feel safer than others at the time? So that's the question about Lithuania. But there was this fear of some sort of I don't know, imminent or eventual Soviet takeover. Um, doubt that they were uh, seeing a Nazi invasion. No one, to the best of my knowledge, uh, no one, 
no one foresaw the final solution. Meaning, even if they would somehow foresee a Nazi invasion of Lithuania, no one was able to anticipate the mass murder, the final solution. By the way, the Nazis didn't know about the final solution in 1939 or 1940. There is a big debate among Holocaust historians, which is quite famous. I'm not going to go into it too much right now. But it's called the Intentionalist versus Functionalist Debate. Um, the Intentionalists, um, for many years, believed that today there's almost no real extreme Intentionalists left um, because we know too much. Uh, the Intentionalist position is, is not sustainable. The Intentionalist position maintained for many years Excuse me, that... Um, that the Nazis, that Hitler, the Nazi party, the Nazi ideology, intended the final solution from the beginning of the early days of the Nazi party, from the publication of Mein Kampf, from the 1920s. There's this linear line that can be drawn from Mein Kampf to the gas chambers at Auschwitz, so to speak. So that's the intentionalist view, that this was always the intention, this was always the plan, and they're just building up towards this terrible climax. That's the intentionalist position. The functionalist position, which seems to be the correct position today, just there's a lot of debate within the functionalist position, is that it was a function of a lot of different factors that developed over time. The Nazi party and Hitler and the Nazi ideology was clearly anti-Jewish, anti-Semitic, in a very extreme way. They definitely wanted to do something with the Jews. Definitely was not clear what they would do. Were they going to expel them? Were they going to contain them somewhere? Were they going to put them somewhere? Were they going to deport them somewhere? Where was that place? That changed over time. There was the Nisko plan. There was the Madagascar plan. There was the Pripet Marshes plan. There was all kinds of ideas that were floated, some more seriously than others, in within the Nazi hierarchy. And mass murder and a... a overall final solution was a function of a lot of different realities, which I'm not going to get into because it's not our topic now. And um, and that those things came together kind of in the summer of 1941 and eventually crystallized into the final solution. And by the end of 1941, there was a systematic plan in, in place called the final solution, which was to exterminate the Jewish people um, um, entirely, to kill them, basically. So the the, that was that was that was decided upon at the end of 1941. So in 1940, no one could have anticipated, even if they somehow knew of a Nazi invasion of Lithuania, but no one imagined the final solution. Because if even if the Nazis didn't know about it, that means no one in the victims would know about it either. So, but they are looking to get out, and there's 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 a way looking to get out to move on to get away from a possible soviet occupation and some were opposed some supported it and this was a very subjective individual decision which countries were options at this time primarily the standard countries that one would expect the united states palestine other countries there were those who bought these like south american passports on the black market that were Able, enabled one to get out also. Um, so there's this there's this search for visas. Um, and here we have like a primary role of Zarach Varavtig, who's the head of the Palestine Commission for Visas. He's a prominent Zionist activist working for Mizrahi and the Jewish Agency. He's one of the heads of Mizrahi. And he um, is the main 
mover and shaker at this point. At this point, I mean late 1939 and early 1940. Um, trying to get the British to distribute visas, you have Rabbi Yitzchak Isaac Halevi Herzog in, in, in Eretz Yisrael himself, who's going, who travels to England at this time to try to convince the British Foreign Office to allow extra visas for clergy, for rabbis, for yeshiva students, for others. And um, and these these that's so Palestine is seen as one of the main venues of escape to get through the British through the Jewish agency to try to obtain visas in that in that role or to try to get into the United States, um, like everyone always tried to get into. Those are the two main countries, and there are others as well. Um, others others that came up, and and that was in general in the refugee community, especially among the Zionists in the refugee community. Um, but others too. Um, Bundists were active in trying to get through the United States, through South American countries, that was more their direction, um, and others. So anyone who had relatives in America was writing letters to them to try to sign affidavits, you know, things like that. Pretty standard operations. What about the yeshiva community? We said there was you know, 20-something yeshivas, 23, 20, 20, 20-something yeshivas that had escaped to Vilna and now had settled down across the Lithuanian countryside. And there were about 2,500 yeshiva students. They were trying to settle down. They were receiving funding from the joint and from the newly established uh, committee for the war, uh, refugee war-torn yeshivas, which would eventually become the Vanat Sala. So they were in a yeshiva schedule. They had found shuls and Bate Medrash across the Lithuanian countryside where they settled back into a normal schedule. They presumably can feel like they can be there permanently and they're receiving their funding and they're functioning and things are kind of like quiet. We spoke about last week how Samuel Schmidt is dispatched as a representative of the Varatzala and he says these yeshivas are an island of, of tranquility in this mayhem, in this, uh, in this war-torn Europe. And here the yeshivas are able to function, they're able to study Torah, and it's a beautiful sight to see that with the whole world collapsing around them, they're able to still continue. So there was, even within the yeshivas, there was this desire to leave, at least in some of the yeshivas. Um, and first of all, individuals, individual students. Some of them had relatives in America, some of them had relatives in Palestine, some of them had connections with Zionist organizations, so they're able to utilize that to try to obtain visas to Palestine, to Israel. And some of them, some of the Rashi Yeshiva, um, at least two that we know of, the Mir and, and Kamenitz at this early stage, they were in touch with Zarah Varhaftig to try to get um, visas for the entire Yeshivas, in other words, Rebach Bar Leibowitz of Kamenitz and Rebelezi Finkel of the Mir, they were in touch with Zarah Varhaftig and Rav Herzog, through Reb Chaim Eizer they asked Reb Chaim Eizer to write to Reb Herzog, who he was very close with, to, um, and we have all these letters, everything's documented, obviously, and um, and to obtain visas for the entire yeshiva to move to Eretz Yisrael, to move to Palestine. So, you have this Reb Lezer Yudel and Reb Baruch Ber, uh, Reuven Grzovsky, more his son-in-law, Reb Baruch Ber was elderly and sick and eventually passed away. In fact, I just saw, um, I was reviewing for this uh, for this episode, I saw a letter from Reb Chaim Eizer, uh, dated Gimel, uh, um, Gimel, uh, Gimel Shvat, I think, right? Um, uh, I think Baruch Ber's yard said was Hey Shvat. Either way, it was two days before Baruch Ber's passing. Baruch Ber was Hey Shvat, Hey Tevis Hey Shvat. I have to double check that. Either way, it was two days before Baruch Ber passed away, 
And Reb Chaim Eiser is writing to Reb Herzog that he was in touch with Reb Lezi Yudel Finkel of the Mir and Reb Baruch Ber Leibovich of Kamenetz, and they both want to get visas for their entire yeshivas to move to Eretz Yisrael. So it's amazing that by the time Reb Herzog got this letter, it was Reb Ruven Grzovsky's yeshiva of Kamenetz, Reb Baruch Ber's son-in-law, because Reb Baruch Ber had already passed away. So literally up until Reb Baruch Ber's dying day, he was trying to get the yeshiva out. Um, and he's buried in Vilna uh, there at that time. So, so, um, so th- th- they were trying, definitely trying to get to Palestine. It was a little bit unrealistic to get visas for all those yeshiva students. Um, so they were not able to, um, but they were trying and they were looking for other venues to get out. Um, and then, and 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 there's and there's that, so there's this activity going on, but it's very low key, especially in the yeshiva community, because they had kind of like gone back to normal, and it was seemingly. This was it. This was neutral, independent Lithuania. There was, you know, there was, the yeshivas are functioning, they're receiving their funding from the joint, from the Vadatzala, and there's, that's how it's going to continue. Until when? Everything changes in the summer of 1940. The Soviet Union takes over Lithuania. And now there's the visa, visa crisis. There's different stages of the Soviet takeover. I mentioned that in part one. June 15th, the the um, Soviet tanks roll into Lithuania. There's a communist government that takes over Lithuania. So that's considered the beginning of the Soviet occupation. And in August 3rd, less than two months later, is the Soviet occupation is finished, is finalized, because Lithuania gets incorporated officially into the Soviet Union. So it ceases to exist as an independent country, which is important because... If it's not an independent country anymore, then it can't have consulates, because the embassies are all in Moscow, uh, not in not in uh, the Soviet republics uh, of the Soviet Union, right? So the, the 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 consulates get shut down by the end of August. The 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 government gives them a few weeks to shut down. So the visa crisis takes place from June fifteenth, when the Soviets take over, until. The end of August, beginning of September, when the last consulates are closed. I think the British consulate was one of the last ones to close. It was like in mid-September. The Japanese and Dutch consulates were earlier. They had shut down, um, and uh, and the the um, so so the the Soviets closed down all the consulates in Lithuania. Um, so, a, really, a few things happen in August of 1940 that completely changed the picture as far as the refugee community is concerned. And in particular, the yeshiva community is concerned, and specifically the Mir Yeshiva. Number one, there's the, what we already just said, the Soviet takeover of Lithuania. Number two, literally the same week as the Soviet takeover, or the incorporation of Lithuania into the Soviet Union, rather, is the passing of Reb Chaim Eiser On the fifth day of Av, 1940, August 1940, and that is a devastating blow to the yeshiva community. Reb Chaim was the undisputed leader. He took full responsibility, full initiative in his capacity as the head of Vada Yeshivas. He was looked at as the father of all the yeshivas. Not only the yeshiva students, but the Russia yeshiva did not make a move without him. He was the leader, and he wasn't just a figurehead leader. He was an active leader. He was the one writing all the letters. He was the one coordinating everything together with his team, with his staff. He was an incredible... I mean, there's so much to say about this individual. He was... And he was dying of stomach cancer the past year of his life, and he didn't let it slow him down at all. Um, and the yeshiva was just one of the things he was doing. He was still a paisik, he was still a leader of Agudas Yisrael, he was still doing other things as well. And this passing of his, which took place the same week 
as the Lithuania ceases to exist because it's incorporated into the Soviet Union, was it was like it was like the 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 yeshiva community felt lost. They they it was devastating. They didn't know how to continue after that. And the third thing was really a result of the above two occurrences. The Committee for the War-Torn Yeshivas, meaning the Varat Sala in the United States, they basically lost its steam and initiative. It didn't stop functioning entirely, but there was no more momentum because the Varat Sala looked at, at their mission to save the yeshivas stuck in Lithuania, and they said, first of all, our point man, our leader, Reb Chaim Eiser, is gone. Who's really in charge now? Who are we supposed to be in touch with? How are we going to coordinate this? How are we going to oversee this project? Reb Chaim Eiser is gone. And second of all, it's no longer Lithuania. It's the Soviet Union. We can't get anyone out of the Soviet Union. The Soviets are going to destroy Yiddishkeit. They're going to close down the yeshivas. And of course, there's going to be no exit visas. There's it's a sealed. It's, it's sealed. It's gone. Everyone's lost. So there was basically this like the Varatzel almost almost threw up their hands in the air and said, "Okay, that, I mean, we tried, and and now that it's in the Soviet Union and Rebbe is gone, also there's really not gonna you know there's not much more to do." So this summer of 1940 throws everyone into mayhem. By the way, if I can digress just for a second, this last thing that I mentioned, the the the. Uh, Varatzel losing its steam, leads Rav Aaron Cutler, as the head of the Kletzky Shiva, it leads him, who had also, he had been pursuing um, an exit strategy, he had also been in touch with Zorach Varavtik to get the Kletzky Shiva visas to Palestine, to Eretz Yisrael, um, as a collective, the entire Yeshiva, which also didn't work out. Um, but he came to this momentous decision, and a difficult one for him, he, he was very reluctant to do it, to leave his Talmidim in Yanova, in Salok, to, to both those places, and travel to the United States himself. Why? In order to invigorate the yeshiva community rescue activity in the Varat Salah, and to unsuccessfully, ultimately unsuccessfully, save his own yeshiva from the outside. Because he felt the Varat Salah needs a, a reboot. It needs to be reinvigorated. And if he would go and reinvigorate it, and he would work himself from the outside to get his yeshiva out, this would be make it possible. Um, so he he he. That's what his his decision was, which was very very difficult for him. I even heard from one of his students in Kletsk who told me he said when Rabaran left, we felt completely lost. We didn't know what to do. But and Rabaran didn't want to because of that he actually pushed it off. He, he waited almost to the, almost to the last second. He was very reluctant to leave his own students. He pushed it off for a long time until uh, until beginning of 1941. Only uh, much much later than everyone else left. Um, and he uh, and he ultimately tried to get them out from outside from the United States, and unfortunately, he was unsuccessful because the Nazis invaded in June 1941. So that's that's that was a digression that's related to Reverend Cutler. Either way, there's feelings of despair now that it's in the Soviet Union, and because of that, we come to a new stage in the visa operation. There's this desperation to obtain visas because. We want to do it before the foreign consulates are closed down by the Soviets. People don't want to live in the Soviet Union. They don't want to. They know that Yiddishkeit is not going to last. The the um, even the ones who are less religious, the the, the uh, it's not related to religion. The, the Soviets are not going to allow the Zionist movement to operate in the Soviet Union. 
the Soviets won't allow the Bund to operate in the Soviet Union. They're against anything that's politically Jewish, culturally Jewish, um, and religiously Jewish. So all refugees are trying to get out. Um, even non-refugees are trying to get out, but they're not going to be able to. So this short period of time, uh, basically the end of June, the entire July, and the entire August, it's really like a little over two months, beginning of September also, so it's almost three months, that's it. The whole visa period that we're really talking about, that we're really focusing on, this is what we're talking about. So if you're talking, it's, it's important to clarify the timeline. Um, this short period of time is the most dramatic part of the visa story, and also the most misunderstood. We're talking about late June, July, August, and beginning of September, 1940. Um, and the first and most important thing that I'm going to emphasize and emphasize and emphasize until you're sick of hearing it from me, is that the danger was Soviet, not Nazi. The danger was communist, not Nazi. No one anticipated the Nazi invasion, and and they're running away from the Soviets. They're running away from the Soviet Union, from the communists, from the Bolsheviks, from the anti-religious atheists, uh, uh, the ones who are going to destroy their yeshivas and their religion. That's what they were running from. So those seeking the visas were looking to escape the Soviet Union. And the risk involved was seen only through that prism. Namely, it carried the risk of requesting a Soviet exit visa, which was likely to mean a one-way ticket to Siberia. Now, a one-way ticket to Siberia in the pre-final solution world, nothing could be imagined which was worse than deportation to Siberia, right? So if we would go back in time, and we have hindsight, so it's hard to go back in time, but if we would go back in time and tell the people there in the summer of 1940, next year the Nazis are going to invade. And when the Nazis invade, they're going to start doing a mass murder of Jews, which is going to culminate in the final solution. Then we would imagine that that everyone would have, there would be no dispute about the visas, much more people would have sought out the visas, there would have been much more desperation, but that's not the prism that they saw it. They saw that they were escaping the Soviet Union, the anti-religious, spiritual dangers of the Soviet Union, and, and, the, and, the, and the dangers, the risks involved was requesting a Soviet exit visa, which would mean, what they thought, would be a one-way ticket to Siberia. Also, another thing to understand is who is going to be eligible for these visas. So it happens to be that it was only going to be the refugee community. Local Lithuanian Jews or local Latvian Jews, or Jews who, who were born in Russia or the Soviet Union, would not be eligible because they were Soviet citizens. And Soviet citizens, how can you leave the Soviet paradise? You're a Soviet citizen, it's sealed, no one is allowed to go. Refugees who carried foreign citizenship, let's say they were German Jewish refugees, or Dutch Jewish refugees, or even Polish Jewish refugees. And here's something interesting. Here's something interesting to point out. Poland doesn't exist. Eastern Poland is occupied by the Soviets. Western and Central Poland is occupied by the Nazis. But, in a weird, quirky, geopolitical reality of the beginning of the Second World War, the Polish government in exile was still a diplomatic entity. They were in Paris until uh, May 1940, and then in London after May 1940. So at this time... It's already after May 1940. It's July, so we're in. They're in London already by now, and they are uh, and they are able to have diplomatic activity. They primarily sit not in their own consulates and embassies, but they have a desk in British embassies. 
Sometimes they had their own embassies, such as in Japan, which we'll get to later on in this series. The Polish ambassador to Japan is another overlooked part of the story. But the, uh, they had a Polish desk in the British consulate in Kovna, where all the embassies were. And, um, and, and the, the, they had the authority to distribute Polish passports of the Second Polish Re- Republic, which didn't exist as a territory, but existed in a diplomatic diplomatic reality, not a territorial reality. And for some reason, the Soviets recognized it, even though they occupied Eastern Poland. But you're a foreign citizen. You have a Polish passport. You're not part of the Soviet Union. Whereas Lithuanians, automatically, Lithuanian Jews, Lithuanian citizens, automatically became Soviet citizens because they were incorporated to the Soviet Union. I, if you want to be a Lambdan, you'll say the Eastern Poland was also incorporated into the Soviet Union. But for some reason, the Soviets recognized the Polish passports as foreigners. So Poles, Polish Jews, or Polish citizens, if they had a Polish passport, and they were able to obtain a Polish passport, most of them did not have one, they tried to get one from the Polish desk in the British consulate in Kovna at this point in July 1940, or slightly before, or slightly before. So they were able to be considered foreigners, and foreigners were able to request Soviet exit visas. So they, there's this this looming threat of accepting so of being forced to accept Soviet citizenship. Refugees assumed that with the Soviet takeover of Lithuania, they'd be faced with the same ultimatum they had previously potentially faced with the Soviet takeover of Eastern Poland. It's, uh, Poles, both Jews and non-Jews in Eastern Poland, when the Soviet took o- Soviets took over in September 1939, they were given an ultimatum: either accept Soviet citizenship or be deported to Siberia, or we have no problem sending you over the new border to Nazi-occupied Poland, which no one wanted either, Jews or non-Jews. So you had three choices, either accept Soviet citizenship, be deported to Siberia, or be shipped over to Nazi-occupied Poland. So there's no good choices. So the fourth and unlikeliest of choices is getting out of the communist clutches, and that's going to be pursued at all costs by many. So refugees now in Vilna, in, in, in Lithuania, in, in Kovna, in Lithuania, in the summer of 1940, they assume that they're going to be faced with the same ultimatum of either accepting Soviet citizenship, being deported to Siberia, or being returned to Nazi-occupied Poland. So they say, okay, let's get a visa. And let's get any visa to anywhere at all costs, no matter how risky it is, no matter how flimsy and how dubious and how fabricated and how forged these visas might be, um, we're going to try to get anything. That's what many, many of the refugees think. Now it's only about the refugees, Polish refugees and other refugees, not the local Lithuanian Jews. The Soviets are closing down all Jewish institutions, some of which were involved in visas and immigration, such as the Zionist organizations and HIAS, the Hebrew Immigrant Aid Society. Those offices are closed down. The Soviets start arresting all kinds of leadership, Jewish leadership and others, deporting them to Siberia. So there's a lack of leadership of Jewish institutions, which continues to stimmy the visa procurement and and immigration efforts. And this adds to the already almost insurmountable challenges, and it leads to panic, because offices that deal with visas are closing down. The heads of those offices, the leaders, are all being arrested and being sent to Siberia. And now there's a Soviet takeover, and now everyone's desperate to go out, and now the Soviets announced that the consulates are going to be closing down in a few weeks, 
So this builds up this desperation and this reality that we better act now, grab anything we can get, and hold on to it and hope for the best no matter what the risks are. So now that we built all that up, so now next episode we'll be able to discuss the details of how these Curacao Dutch visas came to be and how the Japanese transit visas served a crucial role in that story. And that will save for part four next. This is Yehuda Gabber, the Jewish History Soundbites. You can reach me at yehuda.yehudagabber.com. For questions, comments, sources, tours, trips, sponsorships, and lectures, you can subscribe to Jewish History Soundbites on Podbean or your favorite podcast platform. And 